RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. If you think about it, there are certain parallels between plastic surgery and art. For veteran plastic surgeon of 30 years, Chris Edwards, it was a smooth career transition after he ceased his clinical practice in 2015 to become a sculpture artist. Chris is a former president of the Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgery, who chose plastic surgery all those years ago because of his interest in art. And, as you'll hear shortly, his ability to sculpt in clay, he says, aided his plastic surgery. Chris's artwork will appear on the virtual gallery at this year's RAC's annual scientific congress in May. Also, as part of the congress's opening plenary, Chris will give a presentation titled The Art of Being a Creative Surgeon. Chris Ashmore asks Chris Edwards about his early beginnings as a surgeon. Well, I grew up in Launceston, Tasmania, went to the University of Tasmania Medical School I actually found out in my fifth year at medical school that I'm dyslexic. That certainly explained a lot about my school performance. I did my plastic surgery training in Sydney and then a year in uh, the plastic surgery unit in Canisburn, Glasgow, Scotland. And I commenced private and public practice in Hobart in 1986. I made it all the way up to president of the... Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons at one point. I think uh, I was punching well above my weight there. And I retired or transitioned, as I like to say, into my artwork in 2015. Let's talk about that. Did the transition happen over time or was there a clean break between careers? No, no. I've always made things and dabbled in art. In fact, my plastic surgery career probably was secondary to the fact that I like hands-on things, making things, aesthetic things. So that obviously in the medical field attracted me to the plastic surgery. I had been doing more and more art while I was still in practice. So thus the word transition. And uh, when I eventually did pull the pin on the clinical work, I bought myself a utility and uh, felt like I'd become the tradesman and the artist I was always meant to be. It was liberating and uh, a great uh, weight of stress has taken off. Perhaps I should have always been a tradesman in the first place. (laughs) Well, you're lucky to have the opportunity to have two careers, really. Yeah. Well, I think you young guys, it's very common. I know both my children have had two are in their second or third careers and I think you have to think on your feet a lot more now in the more youthful. We just got into a, uh, a profession and hung on in there and yes, it is great to have a go at something else. I'm glad I don't have to actually feed and educate the children on what you earn from sculpture but <laughs> it's good to have a go at it. And what I qualify all of this whole discussion with is that I certainly don't claim any deep artistic knowledge or knowledge of art history and um, my work is no hidden meaning or enlightenment. I just enjoy making things that look nice. Well, you were self-taught, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I did attend a couple of figurative sculpture workshops in Monterey with Richard MacDonald, which were helpful, but yes, predominantly self-taught, inspired by 
some things I've seen other people doing, but self-taught. Do you remember when you first became interested in doing sculpture? I've always liked it. I started painting first, usually copying other people's things, doing it as a way to decorate flats and houses because I felt I couldn't afford, especially as a medical student in the early days, couldn't afford to go and buy other people's artworks. So I just copied things. But as I said, I've always liked sculpture. I've always admired three-dimensional form. But about 20 years ago, I attended a workshop titled The Art of Reconstruction. And it was the brainchild of Professor Michael Poole and run by Michael Essen of the University of New South Wales. And through a series of exercises, including clay modelling, we were introduced to different ways of thinking about form from the traditional surgical protocol. And Michael taught us the benefit of going against the somewhat normal surgical protocol and told us to move around the table. You can't expect to get a three-dimensional form correct if you just stand in one place. The thing that I found was I'd never worked with clay before. I have done woodwork, metalwork. A friend of mine said, oh, you do reductive carving. And I thought, well, I've never really thought of it like that, that yes, I do. If I do woodwork, metalwork, plastic surgery, it's reductive. Once it's gone, it's gone. And that's a lot harder than working in clay, which is additive. So you can put clay on, take it off, it's soft, it's relaxing. You can just keep going until you get it right. And I thought, too, this is, this is relaxing, it's nice. And we all created an image that was quite reasonable for the sort of short period of time that we were doing this course. So I eventually looked into the complex process of casting a bronze, which certainly is complex, and I cast my first bronze in 2003. It was a bit of a, in retrospect, a very naive piece. I put some clay on a coat hanger and created a figure, and it only took me about half a day, and I thought, this is easy, this sculpture thing. So, yes, in retrospect, it's a very naive piece. But then again, uh, perhaps my more recent work is a little bit more rigid. You do lose some of that freedom when you try and get the work more and more accurate. I see. In terms of bronze then, what are the complexities when you're creating something in bronze? Well, first of all, and it's probably not the time here, but the lost wax process of actually converting a clay or any other, could be timber, form into a bronze sculpture uh, takes a number of steps. You have to make a mould of your original sculpture, then you have to make a wax of that, and then you have to melt that out, and then you have to pour bronze into that, and then you have to weld it all together and cut all the various feeding bits off it and then colour it. So that's very labour-intensive, very complex, very expensive. The thing that attracts me to bronze is I've always admired its strength and durability. The other thing about it is that it, once it's undergone the necessary transformation to embody the form, it still maintains its own unique characteristic. And, and that greeny bronze with the metal glowing through it is just something that's always appealed to me. Mm. Now that you're a full-time artist, do you sell your art? Have you always sold your art? No, I haven't. It's only recently that I've well, recently, probably the last 10 years or so, I suppose, I started selling things. Um, they say be careful not to convert your hobby into your job. 
And I've sold things partly through necessity. I mentioned that casting bronze is very expensive, so you can't just keep casting bronze at will. It gets into your superannuation a bit, so (laughs) you need to sell something. And also the house gets cluttered, so you have to sort of offload things. So, yes, I started selling and, um, in fact, it became so successful that I've now had to register as a business and for GST and I need to do now the quarterly bass. (laughs) So uh, I didn't ever do that when I was at work as a surgeon. Someone was doing that for me. But at least I feel like I'm still a small cog in the economy. Absolutely. And you've exhibited your work. Yes, yes. In fact, the very first time I exhibited anything was the inaugural Surgeons as Artists exhibition at the ASC. I think it was around about 2000. And I now exhibit my work on the website, which I gather you've seen. I have a couple of galleries show my work in Hobart and the Sapphire Resort on the Freycinet Peninsula on the east coast of Tasmania. And that's been the outlet for most of my international sales. I now have pieces dotted all around the world. Mm. A couple of years ago on this podcast, we interviewed ENT surgeon, Dr Gillian Dunlop, and she's a very well-known portrait artist. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know her? Yeah. Well, I know her because I've seen her paintings, her portrait work in the uh, Surgical News. In fact, in the talk I gave for the college, I was quoted her name. I've never met her, but right. certainly I, I admire her work. Yeah. Well, she's a very well-known portrait artist, and she said at the time that um, being a surgeon has helped with her artwork and vice versa. Do you find that too, that you find your art has helped your surgical expertise and surgery informed your artistic practice? Uh, yes, dramatically, dramatically, both ways. Learning and practising art has greatly enhanced my spatial awareness and my powers of observation. What a lot of us don't appreciate is human perception is really fairly crude two-dimensional binocular images combined with other senses, past experience, expectations and emotions. And that's what we then think we see. So we see with our, not only with our eyes, but with our brains. And we tend to see what we expect to see. We've learnt a lot of things so that when we see something, our brains can help our crude visual images and make something of it. But the problem with that is that it then creates the so-called assumptive mode. So we can miss things, misinterpret things, which in everyday life isn't such a big deal. And that explains some of the visual perceptual tricks you see, what look like three-dimensional things impossibly twisting into impossible images and old ladies' faces, young. If you're expecting to see an old lady, you'll see one. If you expect to see a young lady, you'll see one in the same picture, that sort of thing. (laughs) And it's vitally important in medicine and surgery, and particularly plastic surgery, to actually not not miss things and actually see what is actually there. And in in medical school, at least when I was a boy, they dealt with this by regimented sequencing of uh, practice over and over, examining patients in a particular sequence and and examining imagery so that you didn't miss things. might be a bit cynical, but 
in this day and age, I'm not sure whether people still examine people to that extent. Mm. But learning to be an artist involves similar strategies. And in drawing and sculpture, you have to learn to create what you're actually seeing, what is actually there. So being an artist involves learning how to see. But these improved observation powers are obviously very important for medicine. And I have no doubt that the enhanced appreciation of form from sculpting in clay has greatly aided my plastic surgery appreciation of facial angles and volumes for example can help envisage what volume and what you need to put in a defect when you've had to excise something and I've found that just simply knowing how much clay goes into making somebody's cheek it's very helpful when you're considering what piece of other tissue you're going to have to put in that defect when you create it and conversely as we're getting to before the knowledge of anatomy and the proportions and canons of the normal, beautiful human form have greatly helped me with my sculpture. Mm. In that sense, then, would you encourage other surgeons, plastic surgeons particularly, perhaps if they're not an artist themselves, at least getting some kind of training or learnings from art to help their plastic surgery? Definitely, definitely. I strongly believe some photography and art training should be a mandatory part of the plastic surgery curriculum. It's often amazed me that plastic surgeons would attempt to reconstruct something as complex as an ear, whereas they are unable to create one out of clay, which is obviously a whole lot easier than out of flesh and cartilage. And as a British plastic surgeon who's also got an art interest Brian Morgan said that clay and flesh are obviously very different materials. However, once surgeons have mastered the aesthetic of one, they can better work with the other, and and that is very true. Mm. And there's a historical relationship between art and surgery, isn't there? Well, I think it's fairly well acknowledged that particularly historically, years ago, medicine and surgery were very much an art. As we learn more science, then obviously we become more science-based. But I still believe surgery is an art. There have been and still are many examples of cooperation between artists and surgeons, particularly as regards medical illustration. A well-known example of this collaboration was Penry Tonks. He was actually a trained surgeon himself before he gave it up to become an artist. And a collaboration between him and Sir Harold Gillies in World War One. And there are some, he did a lot of well-known pastel drawings of wounded soldiers being reconstructed by Gillies in the war. And Michael Essen, who ran the course I mentioned earlier, he's, he's almost like a modern example of someone who's got an interest in surgery and an empathy for surgery and has liaised with these courses with surgeons. And historically, and is the case today, there are many surgeons as accomplished artists. Uh, for example, Alma Diamarani was the first female plastic surgeon in the United States. And Jack Penn, the father of South African plastic surgery, are both accomplished sculptors and retired Queensland plastic surgeon Tony Emmett I don't know whether you've ever come across him he's an artist an author a philosopher and did his own illustrations a lot of them for his various journal articles contemporary colleagues such as Melbourne plastic surgeon Andrew Greensmith he recently painted the portrait of retired uh, president of the college John Batten he's been in the Archibald Prize 
twice a finalist. Mm. Randall Sash in Adelaide is an accomplished glass sculptor. There are many, many more, like uh, Gillian Dunlop you mentioned. Traditionally, mentoring systems in surgery and art have been very similar. Uh, Jim Pote, one of my early mentors, who has a great appreciation of the arts, he apparently, in the interviews for getting onto the plastic surgery training scheme, asked the candidates if they'd noticed the painting in the foyer of St Vincent's Hospital where they'd been waiting for their interviews, and that was very telling. Since you started your career in surgery, Chris, have you seen a lot of changes in the profession in the way we do plastic surgery? Yes. When I was starting my training, if you replanted a finger or did a microvascular free flap, you were some sort of hero doing groundbreaking work. Well, now that's it's obviously the backbone of reconstructive surgery now using microsurgery. We had to use wires and frames and all sorts of things in holding facial fractures together and then various high-tech plates and screws came in. And now, for example, bony defects that we used to have to carve out of cartilage or bone with burrs and screw them on, now we arrange 3D printing of titanium implants which are custom-made and just screwed in. There's a dark side to all of that as well. I think I did a lot of cosmetic surgery during my time, more towards the end. Cosmetic surgery, I think, is starting to become a little bit over-marketed, not necessarily overdone, but I think the marketing of it and the expectations is getting a little bit out of hand. It's one of the reasons that I pulled the pin as early as I did, I think, because I was spending most of my time trying to talk people out of having things done based on the advertising they'd seen rather than actually doing the procedures. Mm. So, yeah, it's the future is exciting in reconstructive surgery. There's no doubt about it. And I've talked about 3D printing. I think in the future we're looking at a combination of tissue engineering and then 3D printing of those tissues into actual whole organs. And someone like Wayne Morrison would be able to fill you in on that sort of thing. And for surgeons that are listening to this, how would you recommend or would you recommend they embrace their creative side? Yes, well, certainly for me, it's been a huge life benefit. Number one, helps medicine, surgery, and particularly plastic surgery, as we've discussed. But there are a lot of other life benefits apart from directly involving surgical technique. I believe we all have an innate need and uh, find joy in creation. It's hard to define, but it's generally agreed that art enhances a feeling of well-being in both the performer and the observer or listener. It can be a great means of relaxation. It allows us to take creative risks and embrace mistakes, something that you can't do quite as readily in surgery. And it's been said that that art is a means of running away without leaving home. And it's also perhaps a socially acceptable way to be unemployed. (laughs) Art is thought to prolong fluid or adaptive intelligence as compared to the crystalline or more rigid knowledge-based intelligence that we rely on as we age. And that's what we are talking about before. You young guys have got to have lots of adaptive intelligence to jump from one career into the next when you need to. 
Learning new skills has been shown to reduce stress and provide intellectual stimulation. The right brain mode that you need for art has also been shown to be very good for problem solving and cognition. Engaging in art is thought to enhance memory. And and I've found mixing with other people in the art world certainly broadens one's social network. And it can be very grounding. I think in medicine you can become a little insular, not all of us, but you can become insular and think you're the cleverest people on earth. But in actual fact, there are a lot of other very clever people out there. Uh, in retirement from surgery, I've found my sculpture has helped me maintain a sense of self-worth and relevance. And it's helped me avoid the relevance deprivation syndrome, which I think is actually very common for retired surgeons. Well, final question then, Chris. What's the future look for you, continuing to do sculpture? Any exhibitions or any anything? I haven't got any major exhibitions planned. In fact, my sculpture has now taken second place to my resurrected mountain biking career. I've got an e-mountain bike now. <laughs> it's a game changer, I tell you. So it's enabled me to get back and do the things I was doing 20 years ago or more. So, uh, yep, that's... I've still, I love the sculpture. I've got a lot of things on the go. But um, yeah, e-mountain biking, give it a try. (laughs) Perhaps your next career. (laughs) Until I fall off, yeah. (laughs) Chris Edwards. For details on how to register for the RAC's annual scientific congress, please refer to this episode's show notes. RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.